Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because we're traveling way back to 1938 to talk about the adventures of Robin Hood, which means I am joined for this very special conversation by JB. Hi JB. With the only member of the F This Movie team who was alive in 1938. That's right, who is still amazed by the wonders of Technicolor. The colors are so bright, and I once dated Natalie Kalmus. Who? We'll talk about her by and by. Oh, all right. She's very important. Um, very good. So the reason that we're doing this show is is very special, uh, because about a month ago, a month and a half ago, uh, there was some very awful and ugly legislation put forth in Texas that would essentially violate the human rights of all trans people and so we said hey if you make a donation we took a page from our friends at the kill by kill podcast and said hey if you make a donation to trans texas uh we will take a request for a show and our friend daniel epler who hosts the cobwebs podcast made a donation and we drew his name and he said i'd love to hear you guys talk about the adventures of robin hood from 1938 so here we are great choice and i don't mean to get all political do it but um here come it's the one-star reviews. Oh, boy. Bunch of <laughs> depressed liberals licking their wounds. Um, that um, It seems that there are forces in this country that are trying to divide us. And um, if one social issue fails, they just move on to the next oh, social issue. for sure. That people have really strong feelings about. Right. And I'm not going to get into the whole story, but I was sort of a Cro-Magnon man about this whole issue. Until fairly recently, when I had my eyes opened, um, when I had my first trans student. I may be wrong, but I'm not. I don't think we have anything to fear from the LGBTQ community. Of course, that's just one man's opinion. Uh, no, I'm with you, and obviously this podcast uh, and this community are very friendly and open to all people, including LGBTQ people. And so when we saw this legislation being put forth, it's like, well, I don't know what all we can do, but here's this little bit that we can help with and we'll get some shows out of it. And so uh, now we're talking about Robin Hood. And this is a great movie, which uh, throws us back to the late 30s, which was, I know people of Patrick's generation will tell you that it may have been in the 70s or the 80s. But that sweet spot around 38, 39, it's really hard to think of a longer run of classic films. People point to 39, of course, but I think 38 was part of it, too. And this film is, is part of that. It's just uh, we haven't talked before we pressed record, but this film is delightful in every single way. I was watching it again the other night and I was actually trying to come up with quibbles. This can't be as delightful as it seems. <laughs> how how am I enjoying this so much? And I think I've seen this thing ten times. It's um, once for school, back when I was teaching, I wrote an example essay of the way students should do certain things when they were writing a certain type of essay, and I used Adventures of Robin Hood as the subject of this example essay. And all of the memories of that came flooding back, why I chose... This film for that example essay, maybe secretly I was thinking, 
maybe some of the students would take the hint and watch the film. But um, I only came up with one quibble. I would suggest that from the time Robin wins the archery contest, spoiler alert for a 1938 film, to the time... um, when he and uh, Guy Gisborne um, have their duel, the film slows down a little bit. It it that's the only time it does not maintain its breakneck pace, and that it's um it's a little slow. But I think we're talking about maybe fifteen minutes, so it's truly equivalent. Yeah, I mean I'm okay with it because of the pace that it keeps up for the rest of the movie. So I'm okay with it. Here's a here's a weird thing, and then I just remember that we forgot to do what we've seen lately. But um, I was watching this in comparison to, well, a couple of other movies. But the first one that I want to mention is we took advantage of the recent Warner Archive sale, which I thought was a thing of the past. So I was very excited to see that come back, um, and bought the 1948 Three Musketeers with Gene Kelly. Oh yeah. And it's really good. It really is. Yeah, it's really, really good in a lot of the same ways that Robin Hood is really good. But it's slower and more dense in terms of plotting. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with Alexander Dumas' novel. Um, But I was watching it wondering, like, why isn't this quite as good as Robin Hood? And I think it does have to do with it's longer. It runs just over two hours. um, And it's paced differently. When it when it comes to life, it's I would say as good as the Michael Curtiz Robin Hood, but I don't think it quite gets there, and I think it's the pacing and the plotting. I would argue that what you've just put your finger on um, is a handy definition of the difference between an MGM film and a Warner Brothers film during this general period. That MGM is more concerned with um, being faithful to the literary source, right? Um, with pageantry, with uh, perhaps romance, although there is romance in the Errol Flynn version, that the parts that we have less patience with today mark it as an MGM film from that time. Okay. Also, film trivia, there are outtakes from the MGM Three Musketeers in the film Singing in the Rain. I read that, yeah. Uh, when we are shown uh, scenes from The Dueling Cavalier <laughs> at the beginning of the film during the sneak preview, it's um, it's outtakes from the Gene Kelly film. And if uh, any of you ever get bored one night and really want to have some fun, because I did this for 30 years in my film studies class, uh, get your remote out and start showing yourself Singing in the Rain. And when it gets to the sneak preview part, get your finger ready on the pause button because there's a shot where someone goes over a railing and it's very fast but if you stop it and advance it frame by frame you can see uh hands reach out at the bottom of the frame of crew members uh trying to catch (laughs) the stuntman as he flies over the um a balcony thing um which you know marks it as an outtake but i thought Always thought back from when I bought the uh, the laser disc of Singing in the Rain, uh, it had this amazing Ronald Haver commentary where, in the space of the film, he just told you every inside joke and buried thing in that film, and that's one of the things I learned listening to Ronald Haver. 
The things you learn from the Have. Um, we're a little out of order, but do we want to talk about what we've seen lately? Well, I think um, it it applies because you had talked about the Warner Archive Three Musketeers, and I know uh, Warner Archive just did a restoration of the Frederick March A Star Is Born, mm-hmm. which is worth everyone's time and attention. And what I've been watching mostly of late are these new 4K transfers that have been coming out uh, drip by drop. Uh, Haven't gotten the apartment yet. That's set to land in my mailbox next week. But I have seen the new 4Ks of Touch of Evil and the Godfather trilogy. And I'm running out of superlatives because I go back. You know, I was alive in 1938. I go back to (laughs) um, VHS transfers uh, in the 70s and 80s that just looked obscene, that were just awful representations of the films. And so even though it means um, I may have purchased something on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray and now 4K, um, I can't remember the last 4K transfer that I didn't think was just revelatory and a a sight for uh, sore eyes. I know that at Christmas you upgraded. Yes. And have you noticed a difference watching things in 4K? I haven't watched that many things in 4K, honestly, because I've only picked up a few 4K discs, and I have yet to really upgrade anything from Blu-ray to 4K because I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't do that because it gets so expensive to keep upgrading. Um, The Godfather trilogy is one where I've considered making an exception because I feel like that's going to be sort of revelatory, but I haven't done it yet, so I may just ask to borrow your discs. It's it's worth the purchase, but I will let you borrow mine. Okay. I know the other night you watched Jurassic Park in 4K. Yes, we did what do did that. What did you think of that? That was great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't know that I notice enough of a difference to continually upgrade, and I'm sure some transfers are better than others. I try to do my research and see, you know... Uh, what is worth the upgrade and what's not. But for the most part, I try to just buy like the new stuff that's coming out in 4K that I don't already own. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I considered it with The Godfather. It's something. And it has and, both uh, versions of Godfather 3, right? Yes. In fact, I think... I don't want to tell a lie. I think you get three. There's three versions? You get the theatrical version. Okay. You get the first time he tried to play with it, maybe for home video, and oh, then you okay. get Coda. Okay. Um, obviously, this is one man's opinion, but you can ignore every cut except Coda. I still haven't seen Coda. Coda is so superior in so many ways. What he's done with Coda is actually really clever, and of course, he fixes what I used to regard as the worst last shot in cinema history. <laughs> And um, he fixed that, so thank you. And his reward for that is that he got trotted out last night at the Academy <laughs> Awards to deliver a very short speech, which actually seemed to be a disguised promo for that miniseries that's coming Ugh. out on Paramount+. Plus. God. And then Al Pacino and Robert De Niro stood there silently. Yep. And then someone on Twitter this morning reminded me that Robert De Niro is not in The Godfather. Right, right. Oh, my God. No. Um, 
we won't talk about the Oscars really. Uh, we're recording no. this the day after the Oscars, but I, I've not been a pro Oscar guy for a number of years. I can take it or leave it. I don't fault anyone who enjoys it or, you know, likes the, the, the tradition of it. The pageantry. The pageantry, if you will. Um, my opinion was always like, I can take it or leave it. If I wasn't home with Erica last night, I wouldn't have had it on. I would have been watching something else, but she wanted to watch it, so we had it on. But um, I think I'm officially done. Like, I think I will leave the room next year. Yeah, in fact, someone um, reminded me once again on Twitter, where I get all of my information, <laughs> that even um, the uh, one of the more direct plays for ratings and that they had a live performance of We Don't Talk About Bruno... Um, was ham-fisted and that it occurred two hours into the broadcast when all the kids who might enjoy it were probably asleep. Yeah, you might have opened the show with that, that, but... Yeah, if you're going to... Well, obviously they wanted to open with Beyonce, but um, you want to put that in the first hour. Come on. I still remember watching the Oscars here at my house with your family and how excited your daughter got. (laughs) The year... um, I'm, I'm... thinking it was it was let it go uh just, maybe oh, oh this thing that she loved so much was on tv at night and adults were interested oh i thought she was gonna lose it <laughs> it's one of my favorite memories of the uh, of the late lamented oscar parties we used to have. right r.i.p the oscar party um any other movies or 4ks wait i was gonna say something else about the godfather damn it i don't remember what it was oh well um, any other movies or 4Ks worth mentioning? Um, I think the ultimate comment um, on um, The Godfather comes to us from Joe Mantegna, who, when he appeared in part three, now called Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, said, I had to say yes, The Godfather is the Italian Star Wars. <laughs> I love that quote. He's one of the best things in Godfather 3. Oh, yeah. In fact... When you watch either of the cuts, although I'm suggesting all you need to watch is Coda, one thing you really wish is that there were more of him in it. Yeah. Because he brings something that um, that we haven't seen in the movies yet, his character of Joey Zaza. Um, I don't have too many things. Most of my stuff have been rewatches, and we've been doing like family movie night the last couple nights, and that's been fun. But uh, I did... Because I haven't been sleeping very well, uh, because I guess when I'm sick, that's what my body does. It says, no, don't sleep. That will make you better. And so I rewatched or watched all of the Blank Has Fallen trilogy. The Olympus Has Fallen, London Has Fallen, Angel Has Fallen. I was on a Gerard Butler kick after watching Cop Shop. I also rewatched Den of Thieves, uh, which is a better movie than all of the Blank Has Fallen movies. I remember really liking Den of Thieves. Den of Thieves is pretty terrific. I was mixed on it the first time I saw it, and then I've watched it like three times since then, and I like it more every time. So I was in the wrong the first time. Um It bummed me out because I don't I don't want to spoil like I just think there's a lot of problems with these movies. They're 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 kind of badly made action movies. 
Um, they all come from three different directors. They're made at three different studios. Gerard Butler and Morgan Freeman are sort of the only through line uh, for all of them. Um, London Has Fallen has a lot of problems with just being horribly racist and Islamophobic. <laughs> Angel Has Fallen bummed me out because uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it climaxes on the roof of an abandoned hospital. So... Once again, we have a modern action movie that has no scale and no scope and no extras, and we could build part of a set and just green screen the rest, so we have two guys fighting against a digital gray sky, and it just bums me out. Every explosion in the movie is created through CG, uh, and that's true of the entire Blank Has Fallen franchise. It just... As modern action movies go, they just feel very cheap and ugly and a little bit uh, lazy. I still have an okay time with them because at least they're like R-rated action movies made for fans of action movies. But um, I, I, I re-watched a movie called Renegades from like 1989 that nobody remembers. It's Kiefer Sutherland and Lou Diamond Phillips. And it has real car chases and real explosions, and it was just this mid-budget, kind of forgettable movie in the late 80s, but man, it sure feels like uh, a relic of a forgotten time compared to what we get now. Because of the practical effects. Yeah. Terry Gilliam, smiling wherever he is right now. Um, I like what you said about London Has Fallen, because my only memory of that movie was seeing it in a theater... And thinking afterwards, that was a little racist. Yeah. Um, which sometimes, uh, what's the phrase? It's um, sometimes action movies fall prey to that because the level of animosity between the protagonist and the antagonist is so high that we must be very careful about how we portray the antagonist. Right. Right. And anytime you're dealing with, you know, forces from another country, you're going to run into that. And. Angel Has Fallen sort of cleverly makes them mercenaries from America, you know, who are sort yeah. of working for hire so we don't run into any of that ugly racism again. Um, the only other movie that I'll talk about just briefly, I guess it's worth talking about because last night at one best picture is Erica and I finally watched Coda, and it's a movie. Yes, and I, I don't... I... So now I am <laughs> I am struck dumb by Coda, which I don't think was their intent. Um, I, I just keep saying the same thing. For what it was, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's fine. Um, uh, specifically, Troy Kotzer's performance, which I thought was the best thing in the movie, and one of the few things in the movie that I really hadn't seen before. Again, because I was alive in 1938, <laughs> Coda, for all the world... Seems like a very, a very good movie of the week from the late '80s or early '90s. Yeah, I don't understand, except maybe some of the performances, what makes it so terrific. I think, in the midst of ten films that couldn't be more different from each other, I think a lot of Academy voters went with Coda because it was sort of comfortably manipulative that that the laughs that it had and especially the tears seemed honestly earned and it was 
an emotional time at the movies. But um, I, I I don't get Coda at all. I think it just falls into the same camp as... I never saw Green Book, but Green Book and The Artist and The King's Speech and all these Best Picture winners that are, like, sort of pleasant, but nobody's going to be talking about them one or two or five or ten years from now at all. Well, the analogy I always fall back on, and this is something you're very familiar with because it's the subject of a very great book, is uh, the year that we had Dr. Doolittle on one Uh, side and Bonnie and Clyde and Graduate on the other, and, oh, such such variety. And the Academy went right down the middle with In the Heat of the Night, although I would argue that In the Heat of the Night is a better film than the other films you're talking about that sort of split the difference between too old-fashioned and too new-fashioned. Right. Um, Someone... I think it was Parade Magazine. I read Parade Magazine. <laughs> For real? The, the, the thing that paper. falls out of your paper? Yes, because remember, I was alive in 1938. <laughs> oh, that's right. And their unique take on the Oscars <laughs> the, uh, yesterday was um, they had little articles about people who never won. And they actually said that if you're ahead of your time, that's a bad thing to the right. Academy. right. Because they're, the Academy's never going to catch up. And if you look at the long, long list of people who never won a competitive Oscar, um, you can't deny that, um, I mean, good Lord. Yeah. Uh, um, well, speaking of old-fashioned, let's go back to The Adventures of Robin Hood, which we started talking about a little bit, and now we'll get a little bit more in-depth. Because we got ahead of ourselves because we were so excited. We were just too excited to go back to 1938. Um, the one thing about the 1938 Robin Hood that I could not find, and I think I remember seeing something or reading something about it, is that it's interesting in that it has two directors and two DPs. Yeah. Uh, William Cayley and Michael Curtiz, and I, I unfortunately don't remember the names of the DPs, but I kept wondering if the production proved to be such a big endeavor that they decided to go with two directors, you know, shooting units simultaneously, right, right. or if something happened with Cayley and he was replaced by Michael Curtiz. I'm not sure. Well, I do know this. I had forgotten that Claude Rains was in this version of Adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah. And you know how I feel about Claude Rains. I do. And I wondered to myself if Michael Curtiz found um, Claude Rains so delightful to work with that he cast him three years later in Casablanca. Yeah, right. And uh, it's it's interesting because in Casablanca, Rains plays a lovable rogue. And in Adventures of Robin Hood, He's a shit, shit, shitty rogue. <laughs> There's a real interesting pivot where we don't we don't find Prince John charming at all. At no. least I don't. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting about Claude Rains was I read on the Wikipedia that there was a scene with him going somewhere in disguise that was cut from the film. And I was glad that they did that because have you ever seen a film where the main antagonist does less? In almost every scene, he sits there. Right. 
um, during the 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 uh, the crowning that should not be going on, he actually gets up and he's persuaded to walk in the in the procession. But I thought that was so interesting in terms of blocking that he's so evil that he lets everyone dance around him. You know, he doesn't have to move. He's the stationary object of 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 badness. Well, that's sort of the function of the Basil Rathbone character is to be the bad guy that gets up and moves around and does stuff so that uh, Claude Rains can just sit there and be a spoiled shit. And I get very confused because in all the different adaptations of Robin Hood, um, some have Guy Gisborne, some don't. Some turn the Sheriff of Nottingham into the Guy Gisborne character in some versions here I'm thinking the Disney version, uh, Prince John is just a baby, basically. <laughs> In the Disney version, he sucks his thumb. Um, but it's interesting how each different version... In fact, I think in the Kevin Costner version, Rickman plays the Sheriff of Nottingham, right? Correct. So you have that where, you know, conservation of characters, we don't need an ineffective villain and a too effective villain. Right. So they're sort of um, thrown in together. Um well, I came to this as a uh, probably ten years ago for the first time. I did not grow up with this movie, and the one that I grew up with, since you just brought it up, is the Kevin Costner one. Yes, and I liked the Kevin Costner one because of when I saw it, because uh, it was the big summer movie in 1991, and it was like, well, this is fun, and I like the music, and I like all these actors, and this is a fun adventure movie. But it's interesting now watching. The Michael Curtiz film, I can definitely see, because I remember Ebert's review of the Costner version at the time was like, this is kind of a slog. This is mud-colored and unpleasant. And that rolled off me in 1991 because I didn't understand really what he was comparing it to. But now I watch the Michael Curtiz film and I'm like, well, this is gorgeous and bouncy and fun. And I can see why somebody would then watch the Kevin Costner version and be like, oh, this is kind of ugly. <laughs> this is unpleasant. These characters are mean-spirited and awful. And Alan Rickman is having fun, but also trying to rape Maid Marian. And uh, I haven't seen, you know, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in a number of years. My guess is I would still like it because of nostalgia, but there's little doubt in my mind as to which version I prefer. Yeah. Um, I know my introduction to the film was the Bugs Bunny cartoon that because the Bugs Bunny cartoons were made at Warner Brothers, they allowed them to use a clip from Robin Hood. So at the end of the Bugs Bunny cartoon, which is included on the Blu-ray that I watched the other night, um, you get that wonderful shot of uh, Errol Flynn swinging in on the vine and saying, welcome to Sherwood. Mm-hmm. Only through the wonder of editing, he's talking to Bugs Bunny. So that was, you know, I might have been 10 years old and watching that on a Saturday morning and saying, who's that? <laughs> what? Why is that in a cartoon? But um, Who's that drunk? <laughs> oh, Errol. <laughs> does, the, does the Blu-ray have like that play all feature? Because I remember when the DVD came out. There were like three or four DVDs came out at the same time. You could buy them in a box set. It was Yankee Doodle Dandy. It was The Adventures of Robin Hood. 
and they all had a night at the movies as a feature. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the Blu-ray retains all. Of it that. does. Okay. And also, if I'm remembering correctly, has a slew of other um, supplements, including um, an hour-long documentary about Technicolor, um, a separate documentary about the making of Robin Hood, and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's a it's a packed disc, uh, to be sure. Um, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned Natalie Kalmus. <laughs> uh, what what happened is her husband, Doc Kalmus essentially invented Technicolor. Ah. Two-strip Technicolor and then later three-strip Technicolor, which is the most beautiful film format that ever existed. Yeah. But Doc Kalmus was not a fan of his wife and so divorced her. And part of the divorce settlement was she got to be the color consultant on every Technicolor film. Cool. So she spends the next 10 years driving everyone at every major studio crazy <laughs> by insisting that she knows best of what would look good and what wouldn't look good in all these Technicolor films. And in fact, um, Adventures of Robin Hood is not the first full Technicolor film, but it is the first Technicolor film where they were able to convince her that the color didn't have to look realistic. Okay. Because on the Technicolor documentary, Jack Cardiff, who uh, filmed all those David Lean uh, masterpieces, epics, weighs in and says, you know, people look at early Technicolor and their first reaction is that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. And Cardiff says that's not entirely true. Um, he has a much more nuanced opinion about what looks realistic and what doesn't. And part of it is based on what you're looking at and you know, where are all these costumes coming from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that you could conceivably have a day somewhere where you walk outside and it's a technicolor afternoon and the colors pop. And that's obviously what they decided to do uh, with Adventures of Robin Hood. Between Adventures of Robin Hood and Wizard of Oz, I sometimes wish I could go back in time. What I've read about the amount of light those cameras needed I would love to spend a day on the set just to see how hot it was yeah right because from what I've read it's like things melting hot Jesus um, also I did a little research because I was watching the film again and enjoying the hell out of it and I started wondering where it was filmed and obviously part of it was on the Warner Brothers ranch but another part of it was uh, a tourist attraction called bush gardens uh not the bush gardens we know and love in orlando but it was a place called bush gardens i'm guessing it was still sponsored by the beer in pasadena california and basically it was a big forest that people would go to and walk around and it was delightful and a whole bunch of the sherwood forest stuff was filmed uh there and though it's not bush gardens anymore it still exists. I forget what they call it. It's the something something forest now. And um, at some point I was looking forward to visiting there um, and seeing what it looks like now. Yeah. I, I, I kind of bristle at the notion that Technicolor needed to look realistic because obviously that's one of the things that we love about it, right? Is the way that it departs from reality. 
Well, I think it's a question of degree because clearly with Adventures of Robin Hood, we're looking at something that's sort of swashbuckling and larger than life. And then with Wizard of Oz, we're looking at a children's film. But I think if you look at Gone with the Wind, the colors are equally striking, but I think um, Victor Fleming took steps so that the color in Gone with the Wind doesn't announce itself okay. the way it does in Wizard of Oz or sure. Adventures of Robin Hood. But again, when you texted me and said, we're, we're going to do this podcast about Adventures of Robin Hood, you remember my first response. You said I was alive in 1938. And then I said something about Technicolor. <laughs> That's right. Caps. That's right. Because... Um, Obviously, having recently seen The Batman. Which I still haven't seen. Um, it's it's worth your time. I went really um, expecting to have an awful time. Yeah. And the only reason I went is because of its length. And I was not allowed to be in my house <laughs> for a day. And so I thought, well, here's three and a half hours with trailers. It'll take care of that. But I wound up liking it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Good. And I, I actually liked it a lot. However, it is the next step in this ponderous, nihilistic, how dark, right. how dark right. can a film, how dark can life be? And um, because I'm almost 100 years old, <laughs> I sometimes like to see something that goes in a different direction like adventures of robin hood where just the colors make me happy yeah um do you know what else makes me happy about adventures of robin hood what's that it's it's made three years after bride of frankenstein and um the invisible man and una o'connor yeah up, she does not only in color <laughs> not only being lovey-dovey and kissy-kissy <laughs> but one of the two directors got her to tone down the aspects of her performance that James Whale obviously encouraged right. her to to pitch to the roof. Right. And um, she's the sort of lady-in-waiting for Maid Marian, and she's delightful in this yeah. film. Everyone, everyone is delightful. A beautiful example of the craft of being a supporting actor. The other thing I found out was, and I don't know why I didn't remember this, is that uh, Alan Hale, uh, father of the skipper on Gilligan's Island, um, also played Little John in the uh, Douglas Fairbanks version. I saw that on Wikipedia. I've never seen the Douglas Fairbanks version. The Douglas Fairbanks version is really, really fun. And I guess later he played the part again. So he's the three-time Little John. And um, I have to say, we've, we've often bandied about, I think it's... Uh, Ebert, who said a, a great movie has three great scenes and no bad scenes. Yeah. That clearly one of the great scenes in The Adventures of Robin Hood is Little John and Robin uh, fighting with the quarterstaffs on, yeah. the, on the log. Yeah. It's just very delightful. And, um, well, I don't want to spoil it, but um, <laughs> at the end, Robin says he welcomes any man who could best him. Which is... a kind of a rare feeling among i think american action protagonists yes but i love that aspect of him that um why not right why not be delighted 
when someone shows that they have they have more skill. Well, again, the contemporary, I won't say the contemporary equivalent is Vin Diesel, but think about Vin Diesel now counting the number of times he gets punched and refusing to lose a fight in a movie uh, because he has to be the biggest swinging dick. And so the idea of a character who would surround himself with fighters who are better than him is novel, you know, in 2022, but also makes complete sense. You know, I was last week or the week before I did a thing about Ridley Scott and I was talking about how well he surrounded himself with all the best people all the time. Yeah. I really like that column. Well, thank you. Um, but it, it translates here too, as Robin Hood is putting his band of merry men together, you know, it's like, why wouldn't you want all the best people, even if they're better fighters than you? And through the magic of the movies, we are actually even convinced that Eugene Paulette as Friar Tuck is a master swordsman. <laughs> I forgot that he was in this because I had watched both My Man Godfrey and The Lady Eve in the last year or so. And he has that voice that you can't forget. And so when he popped up as Friar Tuck in this, I was like, holy shit, it's the dad from My Man Godfrey. Yeah, talk about... Um another terrific supporting actor and um all the stuff he was in he just he 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 brought it and he he made the movie better yeah it's i don't want this to turn into like oh gosh why can't movies be the way that they used to be because there are still plenty of good movies being made my complaints about angel has fallen aside there are still you know good movies that come out um but it is something to watch something from 1938 and feel like not only is this the collection of a lot of people working to the best of their abilities, but it also, I think I, I, it helps maybe that it's a period film because in many ways it still feels completely contemporary. And I think a lot of that has to do with the dialogue, even though the dialogue is stylized and, you know, old fashioned in the way that dialogue used to be. Um, it's sharper than to go back to the three musketeers. I was sitting there comparing them side by side, wondering why does this work better than this one? And I, I really like the three musketeers. I don't mean to denigrate the three musketeers, but Robin Hood's a better movie. And I was trying to figure out why. And part of that I think has to do with, it has much quippier dialogue. And it's interesting you bring that up because the first attempt at a script, apparently, had a lot of sort of pseudo Shakespeare. This is this might be what they sounded like back right, then. Right. Very wordy. And Hal Wallace, the producer, put his foot down and said, No, 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 no. I want short sweet Warner Brothers dialogue. <laughs> Give me something peppy, something snappy. And that's and that's what one of the revisions was devoted to. Um, I also give Basil Rathbone a lot of credit, uh, A, because I love him as an actor, whether he's playing the son of Frankenstein or whether he's playing Sherlock Holmes, but um, he was very good at sword fighting in real life, and so was Errol Flynn. So obviously the whole thing is choreographed, and I later learned all of that is sped up a little bit. Well, you can kind of tell watching yeah. it. Yeah. But there's something about their climactic sword fight that's so wonderful. I mean, not just the way it's conceived and the way that it's it goes through several things. And, of course, the famous shot where they're in silhouette and we, we see the, yeah. the, the shadow figures fighting. But 
it, it seems to me sort of the opposite of what you were saying about the Has Fallen movies, where <laughs> this is the opposite of that. This is two guys who really know how to do it. Right. And it gives you some idea um, of how difficult it might have been to try to kill someone with a sword. Um, back during my teaching days, uh, my wife made me some relatively safe fake swords with padded foam rubber tips and I had the students wear eye protection and um, when I was teaching Romeo and Juliet I devoted one day to having them sword fight with each other (laughs) because I thought this might give them some insight into what that might have actually felt like Yeah, and um, I once invited one of my supervisors to come see it as part of a what is that thing where they come and they judge you and then they evaluation? Yes, it was my evaluation because yeah. I wanted to, him to see something new that I was proud of, and uh, with no disrespect to the supervisor in question, he just kept asking me why I would devote an entire period to that. Huh? And I just kept saying, "Well, we're reading a book where sword fighting is a major plot point, but more importantly." I asked him, could he see where this day of fun, because the students obviously did enjoy it, right. made it easier uh, to sell the days that weren't quite as fun. Mm-hmm. Um, he never understood. <laughs> Until the day he left the school in disgrace. Um, he, and he would bring it up. Like... <laughs> Like years later, actually, it wasn't years later because he didn't last. It wasn't more there than very years, long. If, I, if it's later, who I'm thinking of, I think you know who I'm. I'm sure I do. Yeah. Um, that even months later, he was like, "Why did you do that?" And <laughs> I said, "You're not long for this school." <laughs> um, do you have a favorite performance in the movie? Wow, that's hard because everyone's so good. Yeah. Um, Claude Rains obviously is so good at being awful and slick. Um, I think it might be more his dialogue. I really like the way the Sheriff of Nottingham is portrayed as just a complete waste of space and a complete coward. Yeah. I love the different ways they have of showing that. Um, this time when I rewatched it, I was also really taken by Olivia de Havilland. Um, she just recently passed away. I know. Um, she, I believe she lived to 103. Uh, God bless her. And she made nine films with Errol Flynn. So back then they were sort of people like to come and see the two of them. Um, I noticed with all of her costumes, which are delightful, um, we never get to see her hair. Uh, we do. It's always... Really? There's one where there's yeah, like, yeah. Out? Are you sure? Yeah, because it's super long and like tied up in these two braids. Because I know, um, maybe Unless that's the, not her hair. Maybe because of the sword fighting, Jan wondered how much of an influence the Adventures of Robin Hood had on George Lucas when he made sure, Star Wars. Sure. Because Leia's costumes, right, look a lot like Maid Marian's. Yeah, right, right, right. Um. But I wondered if part of what I was responding to was the costume designer actually going back and researching what clothing back then looked like. I've never seen um, 
The Heiress. Is that worth my time? Yes, because okay. you know it came out as a Criterion title. I do know that, and I actually thought we owned it, but I was looking on our shelf the other day, and it's not there, so I never bought it. Um, but I was on an Olivia de Havilland kick because of this movie and wanting to check it out. And um, I remember when um, FX, I believe, had that miniseries about Betty Davis and uh, Drunk uh, Rock yeah. filming. Feud? Feud? Scandal? Yeah. What was it called? Uh, who's whatever happened to baby Jane. Right. And this film is such a hit that it spawns what was later called a subgenre of hag horror <laughs> that, and this sounds mean, but I'm just quoting that yeah. you get these older movie stars and you, you play up the fact that they're aging for the horror. And I guess in the follow up. Uh, Joan Crawford dropped out, so Olivia de Havilland stepped in, and I believe that was not Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, but it's got a very similar title. Um, Who Slew Auntie Rue? No, that's with Shelley Winters. <laughs> um, I always remember that title, but uh, there's another one of these where you get to see Olivia de Havilland. And um, just to show that if you keep working in Hollywood, you will eventually end up in a film that's embarrassing. Um, Olivia de Havilland, <laughs> Olivia de Havilland is also in the movie, the swarm, uh, which I've never seen, but you wrote about, right? Oh my God. <laughs> is that a, that's a vinegar syndrome title, I believe. Yes. And, um, unfortunately the only version available on home video is the expanded, like director's cut that has ridiculous stuff that was never shown in theaters. I wish they had offered the theatrical cut as as a as an as a bonus on the disc because it's the the extended cut features big bee hallucinations where people think they see a bee that's ten feet tall and <laughs> I'm not making this up and it doesn't work and it's it's risible and it's ridiculous but uh, remember. Um, the, the Disaster Movie King. Uh, Adventure Towering Inferno. Um, Bert, not Bert Cooper. He was the giant bugs. Um, the tip of my tongue. Um, yeah. Uh, he he did Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, too. Um, oh, my God. And, and, oh. Anyway, that guy. Irwin Allen. Irwin Allen. Had Jesus. To, like, like Ed Sullivan on a Sunday night, he had to have something for everyone. So in the swarm, we get these lovable, down-home, small-town folks who are all going to face horrible deaths because of the bees. And in the film's saddest subplot, um, Olivia de Havilland is this delightful lady who lives in this little town that has a honey festival every year. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> honey festival? Not the honey festival. And she can't decide between, I believe it's Ben Johnson or... Fred McMurray and it's delightful and all three actors bring their a games and they're delightful. And then to spoiler alert for the swarm, uh, to see Irwin Allen kill them off. So cavalierly, it's really mean spirited. It's, <laughs> it's one of the most awful things you'll ever see. I'll give you a hint. One of them dies in a train crash. Oh, so there's that. Well, that's not what I expect from a movie about killer bees. But Olivia de Havilland had a long career, and she's absolutely delightful in Adventures of Robin Hood. Back to your question. 
Uh, real quick, it was Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, the movie very, you were trying to think of. Very, very similar title. Yeah. That, I think when you say, what's your favorite part of Adventures of, of Robin Hood, or what's your favorite performance, that somehow naturally I go to the supporting performances because Errol Flynn is a given. Right. Because there's there's not one wrong note. He He is Robin Hood, and yeah. it just delightful and it's never silly and it's never he never does it uh, tongue-in-cheek he man he's there and he's gonna uh, fight for king richard even though i i love the case that the film makes um that all robin hood films should make that uh king richard the lionhearted should not have gone off to fight in the crusades right that was a very bad idea (laughs) in fact at one point robin hood says something it's like you need to stay around here and, and and take care of your own kingdom, sir. Is there another? Uh, I'm trying to think of another sort of, for lack of a better term, like a public domain character, or, you know, a classic character like Robin Hood that is so owned by a single actor um, or so closely associated with one take on the character the way that we associate Errol Flynn with Robin Hood like his is the definitive Robin Hood I'm sure there are several other examples like for me you know there's one Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and that's Frederick March other people may disagree although did you hear just today they announced Warner Archive is putting that out on Blu-ray finally and of course that was directed by Michael Curtiz no it wasn't it wasn't the Frederick March one is Ruben yeah. Mamoulian. Oh, uh, my, my bad. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Overstep my bound. That's okay. See, I'm so old, I forget that. <laughs> um, no, that needs to be on blue. And also, um, oh, uh, the answer to your question yeah. might be, although it's not quite as famous, is um, Basil Rathbone is Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that makes sense. He really yeah. made that part his own. Yeah, yeah. And there's a delightful box set you can buy with all of them, all of the Basil Rathbone films. And you can see how Universal went the wrong way. And that during World War II, they brought the character into the present. Okay. Several of those films take him out of his historical right. milieu and, and posit him as, you know, Sherlock Holmes fights the Nazis. <laughs> um, it doesn't work. And... Sherlock Holmes should be part of, you know, his historical background. Does he, does he, uh, does he box at all? I guess is my question. Oh, don't start with that. <laughs> my God. Again, but those are, those are movies that were big hits that no one remembers. Like those movies do I not exist. tell you how excited I was before that <laughs> thing came out because sure. My man, Sherlock Holmes, um, we might argue, although they changed it quite a bit from the original book, that uh, Johnny Weissmuller comes close. Okay. Um, in the Tarzan films he made in the 30s. I mean, I guess the difference between like Basil Rathbone and these other actors that you're mentioning is they got a number of at bats. Yes. Whereas Errol Flynn just played Robin Hood one time and came out with like the, the definitive take on the character. And apparently, because it made so much money, it was the sixth or seventh highest grossing film of the year, Warner Brothers did float a sequel, 
it was going to be called Robin of Loxley, but it never got made. I would have seen it. And obviously years later, there, of course, years Errol later, Flynn was, um, because Errol Flynn was, uh, contracted to the studio. I'm guessing he would have played Robin again, although he was busy playing every other lovable rogue right. at Warner brothers for 10 years. Yeah, I have, um, I, I have only seen a handful of Errol Flynn movies. Like I've seen captain blood. I've seen this. I own the Seahawk, but I've never watched it. Seahawk is great. And if okay. I remember correctly, Rathbone is in that too. Okay. And the other one you want to, you want to track down is Dodsworth. Dodsworth? Yes. If okay. you would like to see Errol Flynn as a cowboy. I guess I would. If only for... Uh, the sake um, of novelty. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, it's it's the antidote to all that sword and... <laughs> the, I'm having a hard time picturing him as a cowboy. All that swashbuckling. But... <laughs> this is a tangent, but I was reading one of those, uh, you know, Oscar predictor things or where they ask voters what they think. And one of the voters said he wouldn't be voting for Benedict Cumberbatch because he looks too European to convincingly play a cowboy. And once again, I feel like people are missing the point of the power of the dog. Right. And um, I did a, a thing with um, Adam and Rob about yes, I watched Oscars. It. And um, that was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed very much. Those 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 two are you should keep your eye on those two. <laughs> um, that one of the things I liked about Power of the Dog is that you went in with all these expectations, not just because it's a western, but also because of the actors in it. And then over the course of two hours, Jane Campion completely pulls the rug out from under you. Oh no, that's not what this is at all. Right. This is something very different. And I applauded that because I think movies used to do that more often and used to be more comfortable doing that more often. And, and audiences enjoyed it more often. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. I just I thought it was weird that people get to vote on movies when they completely misread them. Yes. I, I don't think there's a strong connection, but one of the few joys of watching the Oscars last night was how quickly people on Twitter started making fun of the fact that someone said one of the most, um, one of the most cheer worthy moments. <laughs> and I, obviously I'm sitting here knowing that film is uh, 120 years old, that uh, people started making jokes about, the flash entering the speed zone who could forget and how that on, but wasn't it because like Zack Snyder's fans, yes, the, game the system. Exactly. Yes. Because someone just, uh, very sadly tweeted. Does anyone remember the movie Rudy? <laughs> and obviously I'm sitting there and my blood is boiling because correct me if I'm wrong, all five cheer worthy moments we're from like the last 20 years. Uh, yeah. The matrix might've been the oldest one. And three of them were from superhero movies. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with superhero movies, but come on. Right. Come on. Right. Uh, yeah, it's like I said, I'm, I'm pretty much done with the Oscars there. Uh, 
because yikes. Uh, but The Adventures of Robin Hood, now that's a movie. <laughs> um, no, I really love this movie. We don't often get to talk about older movies on this podcast because when we do, we don't get as many listeners to be completely transparent. Oh, is that true? Oh, yeah. Well, you're you're privy to that. I'm not. Yeah. We've had people sometimes say, you know, why don't you talk about older movies and I'll try it and then – we get half as many listeners, <laughs> and so then well, I say, well, let's stick with newer stuff. There was the ongoing joke that one of the F This Movie Fests eventually would be 1939. Right. I'll be there. Uh, okay. <laughs> when we get there. I'll be uh, I'll be 100 years old by then, but... Uh, 103. Uh, 103, uh, yeah. Olivia de Havilland was 104 when she died. Yeah, wow. Yeah, pretty amazing. Um, anything else about the Adventures of Robin Hood? Uh, if you're listening to this, um, I appreciate you listening. And if you've never seen it, you need to correct that because it's one of the joys of movies. It really is. It's a movie, you know, that I would show to. I've never shown this to my class before because it doesn't quite fit in with any of the like. Units that we have to cover in the, terms the of objectives the, that they give you. That, exactly that the here's the here's the historical movements that we have to hit, um, and this doesn't quite fit in. I could maybe find a way to squeeze it in to one of them, and and I might try to do that because as I was watching it this most recent time, I was like, this is a movie that I think you could show to younger people to get them into older movies. Um, I would be very interested in what the reaction of young people was to the adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it holds up so well that I think, you know, people with preconceived notions about what older movies are, um, would see those notions proven wrong by this movie. Cause I think it's really, really just pure entertainment. It's so good. So Errol Flynn, do you do you remember when you were in that archery contest <laughs> and you were disguised and in order to win you had to split the other guy's arrow? That was awesome. <laughs> he should have worn a big bird beak like in the Disney version. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I like the Disney version, but I like this no, one. No, I, I do too because I remember Jake watching it when he was a kid. He watched it quite a bit. It's a good one, and that opening song really sticks in your head. Well, that's the only thing the Errol Flynn version doesn't have is that there are no musical numbers <laughs> uh anyway thank you guys very much for listening as always go to fthismovie.com every day for new stuff go to uh at fthismovie on twitter and email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com uh we'll be doing some more of these requested shows in the coming weeks for for those of you who made a donation to trans texas thank you so much for your donation please thank continue you. to fight the good fight and uh, we will see you next week. Thanks, JB. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.